Welcome to the UN Brief. Today, we interview Eric Distoney, who is the chief of the Human Rights Council branch of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. We speak about his book, which covers the creation and the functioning of the Human Rights Council. Uh, so many people are jumping to conclusions. And when you talk about membership of the Council, this is precisely where people are reaching conclusions without having a slightest idea about the rules and the way it goes and the practices and so on. They may have their own conclusions, but, but the, the, the feeling I had was that it was important to dissect this body and to be in a position to say, here is how it works. And now get to your conclusions, but don't do that without knowing how it works. That was the main idea. Right, the complexities of uh, the actual um how it came to be. Actually, one uh, um, part I would like to discuss today, it's the uh, the fact that the, the GA Resolution 6251 established the Council as a replacement to the Human Rights Commission, as a subsidiary of the GA, the General Assembly. But it did not elaborate on the legal and practical consequences you mentioned on page 119. So what in your view are the challenges created by this structure? You see the point was when the commission was abolished, there was a lot of misperception and misconception. Everything was categorized under uh, high politicization or polarization and that it was important to get rid of this body. So there was a long period of time around one year of conceptualization of what the council could be or should be. But there was total disagreements. There was an agreement that there was politicization, but there was disagreement as to what to do about it. So this is how they negotiated the resolution 60-251, which you mentioned. And uh, actually, they could not agree on so many things that it was left to the council, the Nassan council, to actually set it into motion. And there were things like, for instance, uh, the status of the council was not clarified. Uh, several uh, of those who conceived the, the idea. It wasn't clarified. I'm sorry? What do you mean the, the, the role of the council wasn't clarified? Uh, in well, not, what was not clarified was very clearly whether the council would be a main body, which meant at the same state level of the ECOSOC or uh, even the General Assembly, and whether it would be a subsidiary body. And even when discussed this, you get into nitty gritty, but it's important. Is the council actually supposed to report to the plenary of the General Assembly, meaning that it is almost totally independent, or should it get to the third committee, which means that it is actually going to be superseded by another body? So the solution was never really indicated in 60 stroke 251, and it took a good 10 years to get into a solution, which is the one which we are now uh, seeing uh, agreed in New York, where actually the council report both to the plenary and to the third committee. But that was just an example of these issues which were unclear. So many other things were unclear. The council was uh, asked to look into the special procedure system and to rationalize it. It was asked to actually uh, set into motion a complaints procedure without specifying what it would be. So a huge work was taken in the forthcoming 12 months to, for the council to set it into motion. And the number of council sessions has grown and parallel events have increased as well. What are some of the issues there? And does that mean that the work of the Human Rights Council is in great demand and there is no other way of addressing this 
and expanding or perhaps making it a year-round endeavor, you mentioned um, this uh, on page 155. So what do you, is, it, is it in your view, or is it rationalizing? Because there are so many different uh, events and meetings happening parallel to the actual session. You see, the, I take it as a, a very clear indication that the council is successful in the sense that uh, when it was created, it had a certain number of meetings and uh, in the, the book, it is clearly shown that the increase has been not exponential, but I mean, very important. But this is because uh, everyone who around the world has an issue with human rights is turning to the council. And the council, contrary to the commission, was in a position to establish a number of body, commission of inquiry, special rapporteurs, and so on, anytime there was a need for this. And since, unfortunately, the world we are living in is full of places where there are issues and crises and where there are a lot of notions to be clarified, where thematic, thematic issues are problematic, talking about the internet or whatever, we are getting into a lot of new areas of work, which means that the council uh, work uh, plan has been increased significantly. And now it has reached a moment where it is almost exploding in the sense that maybe we could get for a, a situation where, as you indicate, we could go for a meeting all the time throughout the year, but that would be very costly, very difficult, very expensive, or the council need to do some form of introspection. It needs to look into the situation. Does, for instance, the council need to look every session three times per year into all the country issues it does in front of it, or should it, should it not do it only once per year? For instance, if there are several special rapporteurs dealing with issues which are of a comparable nature, shouldn't it be the time now to sort of bring that together and rationalize? But it's, it's easy to underline the problem and to identify it. It's far more complicated to get to a solution to all these elements. And has the impact of social media platforms in democratic institutions around the globe created another chapter on issues of human rights violations, such as the inciting of violence using these platforms that led to the genocide and displacement of the Rohingya? How is the Human Rights Council addressing these issues? Oh, that is very clearly a, a huge problem at the moment. And it has reached, you have mentioned one example, there are so many other ones, either in substance or relating to the council itself. Uh, I mean, in terms of reprisals, for instance, you would have, uh, I have seen cases of individuals coming to Geneva and facing systematic attacks on the social networks at home. And therefore, uh, fearing to get back home, fearing reprisals. And that is happening very often. When you get into the social network, you see a lot of personal attacks against special rapporteurs, against even civil servant, myself, even the president or whoever, are being attacked personally because of their functions. We have seen many, many cases and you have systematic misinformation. For instance, I give you one example, very simple one. So one or two years ago, there was a big campaign which was seen all around the world on lots of social networks saying that one given country was actually presiding the council and this was a shame and everyone relayed that including in the major media 
uh, well, actually, this country was not chairing the council at all. That was a total lie. But it went into, we counted, 359 uh, media outlets, most of them being very serious. So there was an issue because you had a campaign in the social media, and it led to this sort of attacks against the council. So what to do about it is to constantly underline uh, the importance for the readers to avoid uh, falling into the tribe of fake news, to avoid hate speech and so on. And we do have a very solid uh, network of special rapporteurs. And the Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression has issued a lot of guidance and guidelines about it. There were a lot of press releases about this. And we, as an office, we have launched a campaign saying, please check before reaching to any conclusion. Be very clear about the source of information you are seeing in front of your eyes. Don't let you manipulate it and guide it. There are few elements you can do, few issues you can easily overcome by yourself by being more, let's say, vigilant. And that's something which we are really pleading very, very much. Um, what were some of the um, aspects too? There are many positive aspects. There are challenges of growing things, so to speak, right? But uh, what else would you see that uh, are positive things that came from this uh, wide-ranging evaluation you made of the work of the Council, which has been in existence for, what, for 14 years, right? It's 2006, and that's, I, I think that one of the most difficult tasks ever is to try to identify the positive elements. And I try to do that in the conclusion of the book to show that the Council has been very effective in a number of, of issues, and I pinpointed them from the right to food to uh, many country uh, issues. If you look into, I mean, just take one very simple example, Syria. Uh, I would say that the only place you can turn your eyes to where you can see a very clear depiction of what happened since the very beginning of the Arab Spring to today with a scientific and legal and factual approach with information is the council. The fact the commission of inquiry, all the uh, documents you have there, uh, thousands of pages of materials, lots of uh, documentation, which may be hopefully used one day in the context of an international tribunal. So you have all these positive elements, which we need to advertise and advocate more. Probably we are not doing that work so well. At the same time, there is something which I referred in my book as the uh, changing nature of frustration. And what, that mean, what I mean by that is that if you look into the 70s or the 80s in the old days, uh, quite clearly the public was frustrated because they didn't get information on human rights violations in so many areas. The Cambodian genocide was barely mentioned and the Commission on Human Rights did not succeed in even adopting one single resolution, which is incredible given the fact that a quarter of the population was killed by the Khmer Rouge. So now we are in a situation where almost all situations in the world are being discussed. You do have general debates, you have discussions, you have recommendations, resolutions, you have reports, you have everything. You have thousands of pages on absolutely everything. So now the frustration is not, well, I didn't get the information. The frustration is, well, you are aware of all this, but what are you doing? Are these things changing? And what do you do exactly? And this is where the council is a bit isolated because the council doesn't have blue helmets. 
the council doesn't have a force which he can send to countries, or he doesn't have a bunch of lawyers which can who can look into certain thematic issues. And there is this difficulty of translating into deeds what is generally agreed and recognized and condemned by the council. And this is my main concern about this frustration now. And the need is really there for the New York bodies and for all other international organizations and the multilateralism in general terms to take into account this incredible, valuable information coming out of the council. And uh, another aspect I would like to discuss that is the integration of human rights in, uh, in the work of other agencies. How do you coordinate that? Because there has been somewhat a, a desire to do that, right, throughout the, those years, that the Human Rights Council can work in tandem with other humanitarian, UN humanitarian organizations, agencies, right? Like every agency will have an office that is dedicated to issues of human rights. And how does that coordination happen? Because you do mention that in the book. So... What do you see are the challenges there and also what's happening? What has changed in this last 14 years? You see, uh, at the time of the commission or in the initial years of the council, uh, there is one word which was constantly used, coordination, coordination, coordination. It becomes a leitmotiv, but it also, um, I'm not a linguistic uh, expert, but when you use a term too often, it loses its meaning. And uh, the, the UN, as any other big bureaucracy at one stage, tend to get into this trend of using a certain vocable and without providing any elements into what it is actually in practical terms. So at the time of the commission, you had regular meetings where other organizations were invited, they were speaking, and everyone was listening to them and everyone was saying, thank you so much, your contribution is greatly appreciated, and then we moved to another item in the business, in the, in the discussion, and that was not concrete enough. At, at the say at the level of the council, what, what we really try to do since the very beginning is to move into the practical terms. So I give you examples. When you do have discussion of the situation, awful situation of human rights in the Kasai region in the DRC, well, those invited are from the African Union, are of course the UN interlocutors here in Geneva, but also uh, the uh, resident coordinator in, 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 in the country concerned, SISG and so on. So it's trying to bring together people so that they can actually make changes in the uh, place which is uh, under consideration. And you can uh, expand on these sort of things. We are trying to really move into this practical practicality. The UPR, the Universal Periodic Review System, is another example where instead of having delegate, the representative of this organization making statements, what we ask them to do is to provide us with very specific, concrete information as to the state of play in a concerned country. And then that beefed up the work of the council and enabled it to make very specific and tailor-made recommendations. So this coordination is important in so far, it leads to concrete and practical changes in the field. That is very important. And regarding the universal periodical reviews, uh, what did you see is uh, the challenge there? Because in the beginning, it seems like it was more politicized, right? And now it's gearing more, of course, countries want to present in the best light, the evolution of how they are addressing issues of violation 
of human rights, but uh, what are the challenges there that you don't fall into just a sort of a makeup sort of presentation, window dressing, or so, so to speak, right? That we don't fall into the window dressing, but we really look carefully at what's happening and that there is positive mo movement from the community, from the international community, through the mechanisms of the Human Rights Council, that you can actually help countries advance you are absolutely right. The, the UPR is a wonderful mechanism. It's a really one of the main successes of the council. You see, when initially uh, it came, the idea came from Louise Arbeau, who wrote the foreword of this uh, book. And we worked together on this. And frankly speaking, we never expected that it would remain universal. In our mind, uh, when we started this, we thought that we would be lucky if around two thirds of the countries would actually be reviewed regularly. And eventually, we thought that the threshold would be 50%. And well, all these years later, everyone, every single country have reported and the system has proven to be very valuable. And um, the, the main shortcomings or the risk, the risk is that at one stage, it's become a bureaucratic tool where a state sends a delegation every four years and a half get there and say, we are very nice. We are very happy to cooperate with you. We'll do whatever you want us to do. We agree with some recommendations, we disagree with others. And then they get back home and they wait for another four years and a half. That's the main risk. So that's why we push a lot for actually using the good uh, elements in the UPR uh, so that others are actually the implementers. And what I mean by that is that the UN components at the country level, uh, international organization, NGOs, would actually get into uh, a country and discuss concrete elements in uh, the recommendations which they are reading in these documents. Um, there is one thing which I call the arithmetics of the UPR, which people are not usually, uh, well, of course, I'm, I like using these sort of terms. Uh, it's If you look into the number of recommendations, you will find a very strange uh, very strange fact, which is that around two thirds of all recommendations are always approved by states. And well, this is not by pure chance. If you're a state facing some problems, you get to Geneva, you want to look good. So you look into your neighbors and you cannot be in a situation where you approve less recommendation than your neighbor. So you will approve around two thirds of them. But the problem is that probably 50% of them you can live with, but not the remaining ones. So you do have a significant number of recommendations which are approved by the state, but actually they don't like it. They don't like them, but they are more or less obliged morally or psychologically speaking to approve them. And that is where the NGO movement, the UN system, all the actors can actually work together to make things change in the country because that's, you, I mean, if you're an NGO, if you get to uh, uh, government and you say, I would like to speak about freedom of expression in your country, this, the response would be, thank you very much. You would have an appointment next, next year in March. If you get there and you say, listen, we would like to talk to you about the implementation of a recommendation which you approved on, I don't know, amending this specific legislation on uh, which has a component on freedom of expression, your counterpart cannot close the door on you. Your interlocutor will say, please, let's sit down and see what we can do. And that is what is the value to my mind of the UPR. 
And this is where the challenge for us is to arrange for, to manage for this implementation of the UPR outside Geneva. The UPR is not, a, it should not be a Geneva uh, mechanism. It should be a mechanism which start in the country and end in the country. What about the role of the private sector? Because I remember last year I went to a conference that was organized in partnership between the Office of the, Human, uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, as well as the UN Global Compact in New York. And uh, the event brought together members, um, stakeholders from the private sector, companies, right? So. What is the role of companies and what is the work of the Human Rights Council in relation to the private sector? Because the private sector employs thousands of people. They have a, a role there too that they could do, you know, perhaps help countries advance, you know, particularly multinationals when they go abroad or to emerging economies and they try to, you know, what is the role and how does the Human Rights Council works with uh, the private sector in that aspect? That, that's a, a huge issue because uh, as you, you're absolutely right in saying that in a way, in many aspects of uh, human rights, the, uh, the governments of the world are playing a role which is not anymore the leading role. Some of the transnational corporations are actually, they do have a, a budget which is um, probably far above the budget of quite a number of, of big countries in Europe. So this is where the attention must switch quite rapidly. And there is there are several attempts at the level of the council, uh, including in what we call the, the forum on, 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 on TNC, Transnational Cooperation and Human Rights, which is a big one. Uh, well, before the COVID-19 year, we used to have thousands of uh, companies coming to Geneva and discussing human rights and how to actually implement the guidelines and so on. There are also efforts being made by some, and there I must underline the fact that there is no uh, consensus on this, to try to see whether it is now time to have a convention on this. Uh, but needless to say that this is very polarized, not to mention politicized. But it's clear that uh, increasingly they will have a role to play. Uh, the point is how to conceptualize this. Uh, since we have always advocated in the human rights field that those who are there accountable for human rights violations are the states. This is why it is so difficult for us, for the human rights world, to look into situation, uh, legally speaking, where uh, others have committed violations because we consider that it's a state which is accountable. Ultimately, it's the state that's accountable because they have welcomed the company in the country and if they don't abide to the uh, human rights uh, laws in place, then yes, absolutely. I see this challenge there. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure. Is there anything else you'd like to speak about, that to talk about in the book that I haven't touched upon? Uh, maybe one thing which I, I think... Uh, I'm always looking into with very naive eyes is when people are talking to me about politicization. That is a word which you see all the time when you talk about human rights and the Human Rights Council or human rights and the General Assembly or the United Nations. And this is something which I never, ever understood. Never. Uh, why? Because when you deal with human rights at the domestic level, 
if you are at a family table at Christmas and you talk about some societal issues, that is to say human rights, there will, not be, there will be no agreement. And sometimes it ends up very badly. When you look into what is happening at the national level, very often you have hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating for uh, defending certain human rights. And there are strong arguments, sometimes violent arguments in parliament and so on. And then suddenly there is this concept that when you move these issues of human rights, which are so controversial at the national level, you move it to the upper level, which is the multilateral level, all politicization should disappear. Everyone should be agree, should be uh, agreeing on these uh, various issues. Everyone should uh, nicely, with a very nice smile, say, yes, we all agree. This is a dream. This is a dream which will never come true. And what I even argue, argue is the moment there will be something like this, that is to say a human rights body at the UN level agreeing on everything uh, by consensus. And that is the moment when this body will be totally obsolete because it means that it will be a bunch of dreamers having absolutely no contact whatsoever with reality. So politicization is important. It is there. It will always be there. But the the main issue is how you deal with it. And this is what should busy our minds, to try to find ways for delegation to disagree, but in a manner which is constructive. So that's the main challenge. And this is how I, I, I see politicization as something you need to master, but you need to live with it and not to negate it. And whoever thinks that the council will be one day composed of a club of people who are very happy together, they will lose ground and contact with reality. That would be my conclusion. Agree to do to disagree without being disagreeable, right? So thank you so much again. No, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Pleasure. That was the UN brief presented by Maya Plants in an interview with Eric Tostemier, Chief of Human Rights Council branch at the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Geneva. Don't forget to subscribe. Thank you for watching.